It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program... As part of our Open Future season here at The Economist, we look at open markets and how tax systems can be improved. I, for example, would would like to get rid of stamp duty, which is a tax on transactions of of houses. I might actually replace it with a wealth tax, which would be some sort of uh, tax on the value of the land on which a property has been built. And the electric bike business is riding high. It's certainly noticeable as you as you ride through the, the famous Amsterdam Vondel Park that some people are suddenly going a lot faster than others. First, the drums of trade war are getting louder. On Monday evening, Donald Trump directed his aides to compile another list of Chinese imports worth $200 billion on which tariffs of 10% could be placed. This will happen unless Beijing drops a promise to retaliate against a previously announced set of US measures. Global markets fell on fears that the escalating trade scrap would turn into a full-blown trade war. Our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, hit the road. I'm standing outside a gigantic car factory owned by uh, General Motors' Chinese joint venture partner, uh, Shanghai General Motors. And this is one of the factories that, if America imposes these tariffs on Chinese goods will be immediately affected because one of the very few cars made in China that is sold in large numbers in the United States is a Buick SUV. And as lorries thunder past carrying goods and materials to this factory, to a big Hyundai Korean car factory up the road, the SUVs that they sold 40,000 of last year in the United States made in this Chinese factory, uh, their price will go up by about $8,000 on July 6th if these tariffs are put in place. General Motors has been here a long time. Uh, They actually sell more cars in China than they do in the United States now. And it looks like your classic car plant. It's got lots and lots and lots of enormous industrial buildings. It has, uh, you know, tons of entrances for uh, trucks to come in and out and lots of car parks full of gleaming new cars, mostly for the Chinese market, but some for the American market. A big difference with if you go to a car plant in China versus America is having been to car plants in America, they then have car parks absolutely crammed full of that brand of car because if you work for Ford or GM, you buy a Ford and a GM and you proudly drive it to work. This is still a poorer country, so you have enormous car parks full of mopeds and bicycles, which the, the workers take to work, and then just a smattering of cars outside. I went to talk to workers, coming off their shift, heading to their mopeds, and asked them if they were worried about American tariffs on Chinese imports. I'm worried. It's going to have a significant impact on our salary. If exports become more expensive, fewer cars will be made here. I'm not concerned because I know our cars sell really well. The American market, though it's not small, 
it's not big either. Besides, this is an issue between two countries. Even if I were fearful, there's nothing I can do about it. If I worry, I have no way to resolve it, don't you think? And they definitely blame America, and they will tell you that America might uh, be keen to slow China's development, might be worried about competition from Chinese cars, but there isn't an intensely personal blame attached to Donald Trump. Why do you think they don't blame Donald Trump? One of the really interesting things is that partly because they get their information from very, very strictly controlled Chinese state media, there isn't a kind of anti-Trump wave that you see in so many other countries. You know, if you think about the reaction in Mexico or in Canada or in the European Union to previous Trump trade tariffs, it's very much a sense that Donald Trump is not like any other American president, that he's breaking the rules, that he's tearing up the system that America designed, and that he's shocking his own kind of Republican Party going against their instincts, because he's in some way playing to very specifically his base of voters. That's the message you hear everywhere in the world, except in China, where people basically, they either quite like Donald Trump, because they think he's a successful, wealthy guy, or they basically make no distinction between Donald Trump and the American government. And that's got a lot to do with the way that politics around the world is presented to Chinese people. What do Chinese people see when they watch state-controlled media? Yeah, so if you watch the Chinese evening news, and that's where you get most of your sort of world news, you basically see a succession of powerful leaders in suits and ties sitting in an armchair next to your powerful Chinese communist leaders in suits and ties and representing the kind of national interests of each country. The idea that an election in a place like America could change everything, that an insurgent outsider who sort of speaks to the passions of one bit of the country or one class of voter could overthrow everything, could be a kind of revolutionary figure uh, who's now pandering to that base. That is very alien to the way that China likes to present politics, which is very much about kind of world statesmen kind of coming in a motorcade, very, very formulaic, and then representing each country's national interests. So this is probably the only country uh, that is having a trade fight with Donald Trump, which isn't describing it for the moment in terms of kind of America first populism, because that's quite a dangerous road for China to go down. I presume also the Chinese government wants to give itself a bit of headroom and a bit of leeway in which to manoeuvre in the hope that maybe we can de-escalate and not progress to full-blown trade war. Exactly. So and we know this is a country where China's state media is perfectly capable of kind of turning on and off the tap of nationalist rage. So in recent years, we've seen for various reasons, uh, South Korea, Uh, Its business is really suffering because of a political dispute with China. We've seen the same with Japan over the years several times. And again, you know, consumer boycotts, huge amounts of anger, kind of protests outside Japanese businesses. That is not happening this time, at least not yet. And you're quite right. Part of it is China actually has an interest in settling this and doing a deal. So whipping people up leaves them less room for maneuver. The other thing is that taking on America and whipping up anti-American sentiment, that is a really quite high-risk maneuver for the Chinese government. So for the moment, although the state media is criticizing Donald Trump sharply and saying that China will not be humiliated, that China will retaliate, there's still a kind of more in sorrow than in anger tone to this. It's like, you know, we do not want this trade war, but, you know, we won't be bullied and threatened, but let's try and resolve this. David, as you're waiting for your flight back to Beijing, how has your opinion changed about the prospect of full-blown trade war? Is it looking more or less likely in your opinion? The problem is that there isn't an obvious way out of this, that 
unless Donald Trump chooses to back down, if you believe what he is saying, that it's about not just this or that unfair trade practice, but that he really wants to challenge China's gigantic plan of kind of industrial policy to dominate some key sectors of advanced industry over the next few years, if you take him at face value and you think that's what he's up to, it's very hard to see how China can give him what he wants on that. And one of the interesting things you hear if you talk to people on the inside of this is the message that is being sent with these tariffs by the American government is not just a message to China's government or even Chinese businesses. They're also trying to send a message to American businesses that they should not be doing certain forms of investment or manufacturing in China. This is Donald Trump and the team around him picking a fight with the very kind of idea of globalization itself. Now, Donald Trump is capable of turning on a dime. He's capable of backing down if China chooses the right punishments and, you know, farm state voters in, in the Midwest of America are furious at seeing tariffs put on, you know, this or that crop. So it's a mugs game saying that Donald Trump won't change his mind. But the pieces are in place for really quite a nasty dispute because Donald Trump is asking China to give up a plan for modernization that, if he's serious about that, it's very hard to see how China can give him that concession. Thanks, David. I hope your flight's on time. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next. Daddy, what do taxes pay for? Oh, why everything. Policemen, trees, sunshine. And let's not forget the folks who just don't feel like working, God bless them. Paying tax isn't top of most people's list of pleasurable social obligations. Are there ways to make it better? One strand of The Economist's Open Future project is Open Markets, an exploration of how to make capitalism work better. The aspect we're going to focus on today is tax. Our Britain economics correspondent, Callum Williams, sat down with Julian Jessup, the chief economist at the Institute of Economic Affairs, to have a chat about how tax systems could be improved. Perhaps it's best to take Britain as a starting point. Let's start with income tax, because that's the biggest single tax. What's, what's kind of our current strategy for income tax? Well, you're right. Income tax is just about the most important tax in the UK, though overall it does raise less than 50% of total tax revenues. The system in the UK, I think, is, is pretty good. I think there are sort of three tests that you might apply to a system of income tax in particular. Is it fair? Is it efficient? And is it simple? The British income tax system is fair, I believe, because it's progressive. In other words, people earning more pay a higher share of their income in tax. I also think it's fairly efficient because tax rates are are not too high. They're a little bit higher than I would like them to be for higher income earners, but uh, they're not at the sort of level that um, discourage lots of people from, from working. And I also think the UK income tax system is, is relatively simple. So let's turn to the question of progressivity. Britain's main opposition party, Labour, wants to increase the amount that the top 4 or 5% pay in income tax. So they basically rely on the assumption that Britain's income tax system could do with a big extra dose of progressivity. What, what do you make of that proposal? I'm wary of that. I mean, first of all, I think that they somewhat misdiagnosed the problem. I mean, income inequality actually in the UK hasn't been rising. It's been pretty much flat for a long time. There has been an increase in wealth inequality, partly because equity prices and house prices have risen a lot. But you don't address that through the income tax system. You, you address that through various wealth taxes. The second concern I've got is that a lot of the focus on high income earners, I think, is driven more by envy than by economic rationality. Indeed, they've actually 
actually been some surveys suggesting that people would like richer people to pay more in tax, even if overall it doesn't actually raise any more money. And the reason why it may not raise any more money is is what an American economist in particular has called the Laffer curve, which is the idea that beyond a certain level, high income tax rates are a disincentive to work. If you sort of rely on this notion that, that we do need to tax the rich more, you might actually look towards wealth rather than income, perhaps. Where do you think you know, a reformer could, could focus? Well, I think there are a number of things. One of the biggest problems, of course, facing the, the UK economy at the moment is the property market, the, the lack of house building. I think there are a number of things that we could do there. I, for example, would, would like to get rid of stamp duty, which is a tax on transactions of, of houses. And at the moment, it, it's, it's an increasingly complicated system. And the rates for higher value houses are, are particularly high. They basically discourage people from moving I might actually replace it with a wealth tax, which would be some sort of uh, tax on the value of the land on which a property has been built. And this is an idea that's been around for a while. Hundreds of years, economists have have liked the idea of of taxes on on land. And of course, with land taxes, one of the great sort of advantages is that it's kind of pretty impossible to hide land, right? So it's a pretty efficient tax. Exactly. It's, it's, It's relatively easy to collect. And also, it's not distortionary because you know you might have a choice between uh, working and, and, and not working at least if you're well off you have that choice um, but if you have a, a piece of land that you're you haven't developed uh, and you end up paying a high tax on the undeveloped value of that land then that's a big incentive for you to, to bring that land into efficient use absolutely so just taking a step back from the UK for a moment are there any kind of generalizable rules about about designing a tax system you know should governments basically try to rely as heavily as possible on Wealth taxes, should they try and rely as little as possible on consumption? I mean, do you have a sense of what the right mix is? The first thing is that I wouldn't raise the overall tax burden. There's plenty of evidence that a tax take of more than, say, 40% of GDP is damaging for most economies. Generally speaking, through the tax system, you don't want to encourage people to do one thing rather than another, unless there's a very good reason for doing so. A good reason might be you want to you know, tax certain activities that might be polluting as far as consumption taxes are concerned, you know, there are pros and cons. I mean, obviously, um, you don't want to have high taxes on things that people who are relatively poor spend a lot of their money on. So it's understandable that, by and large, you don't have consumption taxes on things like food and, and children's clothing. On the other hand, the one advantage of a consumption tax is that it, it is extremely hard to avoid. So um, what I think is you need, you need a balance through the, through the tax system. So you need a, a low overall level of taxation. You need a balance of taxes so you're not penalising or distorting activity too much one way or the other. You want a relatively simple system and you want a system – I do believe you want a system that's progressive. I think it's right that people who are better off pay more of their income or wealth in tax than people who are worse off. But you can take that principle too far and if you end up penalising wealth creation or, or income creation. Not only do those people who are better off suffer, but ultimately we all suffer. Julian Jessup, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Julian Jessup there, the Chief Economist and Head of the Brexit Unit at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Open Future is a conversation, and recently we asked our online followers for some of their ideas for tax reform. First, we asked whether governments should do more to redistribute income to poorer people. Callum, one of those caught your eye. Yes, this was a comment on Facebook from somebody called Luke Mitchell. And he had quite a pithy statement, which was the following. Redistribution should aim to give more money to the poor, but governments need to be sure to maintain competitive markets and free trade. And the reason we liked that was because it touched on one of the sort of central trade-offs that uh, governments have to think about when they are 
designing a tax system between progressivity, which is basically a good thing. But on the other hand, they need to make sure that the tax system is efficient. Now, in the last few years, say the last decade or so, I think, Britain has progressively taken more and more people out of the tax net altogether. Yes. I presume that's a big difficulty just for you know how you would raise more money when you need to. Absolutely. Absolutely huge. It's really expensive. And weirdly, it's actually quite regressive because essentially the way it works is the government says you need to earn more and more money before you have to start paying income tax. That sounds great. That sounds like something that will help the poor. But the thing that people sort of forget is that not only do people who are at the bottom of the income distribution benefit from that, but someone who's earning £100,000 a year also benefits from that because they only start paying income tax when they reach a certain level. So they actually get a big cut to their tax bill as well. So it's actually a really, really expensive way of giving extra spending power to people at the bottom of, of the income distribution. OK, we also asked what the best way to design a tax system would be. And we got a very wide spectrum of responses to this. So some people said, you know, abolish tax altogether. Other people actually called for more tax havens, which is an unusual proposal. Um, and one suggested that human beings can't judge well enough and that AI would design better tax systems. Yes, there were lots of comments. And the one that I thought was the most interesting was one by a man called Brian Sherry on Facebook. The most interesting bit was at the top where he said lower taxes on income, employment and investment returns, but raise taxes on consumption and wealth and assets. And that probably is something that we at The Economist would generally be quite supportive of. So different sorts of taxes, I guess, have different sorts of problems associated with them. I'm thinking of avoidance particularly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So if you're thinking about how do we limit avoidance, if that's your sort of main goal, then probably consumption taxes are the best one to go for because people have to spend, they generally spend in shops. If you can rely on shopkeepers, to be honest, which you probably can on the whole, collection of these consumption taxes is is kind of quite easy. So if you want to raise a lot of money quickly, go the way of consumption taxes. What would you do if your main goal was to be as progressive as possible, but to try not to have these very difficult questions of feedback loops that you mentioned? Yeah, well, I mean, that's where wealth taxes come in. And these have been explored a lot less generally speaking, in rich countries. So that is stuff like taxation of housing and inheritance. Inheritance, for instance, is something that's becoming a really, really big deal in rich countries. You know, you're, you're looking at roughly 5 to 10% of GDP each year is passed on in the form of inheritances. And of course, the thing is that people who tend to give inheritances tend to be quite wealthy and people who receive them also do tend to be quite well off. So if you were actually really keen on dealing with inequality, then you might think about increasing inheritance tax, which at the moment in most countries is very, very low and raises almost no money. Thanks, Callum. And of course, if any of you want to join in the conversation, please get in touch. You can email us at radio at economist.com or head to the dedicated Open Future website on economist.com. Finally, electric bikes are rolling onto the streets at an impressive pace. Nearly one in three new bikes bought in the Netherlands last year was electric, and businesses are joining the ride too. Sasha Nauta, our business correspondent, is on the line from Amsterdam. Sasha, you're in what's famously the world's most cycle-friendly city. So are one in three of the bikes that you're passing and you scoot around the place in Amsterdam electric now? Yes, well, one in three newly bought bikes in the Netherlands is electric, which is not quite the same because, of course, there are a lot of second-hand bikes here on the on the roads. But it's certainly noticeable as you as you ride through the the famous Amsterdam Vondel Park that some people are suddenly going a lot faster than others. And interestingly, you know, 
the initial group that was targeted with these electric bikes were the slightly older cyclists to sort of give them a little push in the wind. So you'll see these sort of 55, 65-year-olds suddenly zooming past you. Turns out they've got a little battery in the, in the back of their bike. Are some of these shared bikes or is this mostly driven by people buying them themselves? Well, so here in... Amsterdam and in the Netherlands more broadly, everyone owns a bike. I think there might be more bikes than people, actually. So here it's less about share schemes. But in other cities in the world, bike shares in general, of course, have been growing significantly over the last years. um, And e-bikes are just the latest addition and seen as a very good way of sort of broadening the audience. So Paris is a Vélib share bikes are going to have, I believe, a third of their new fleet will be electric, again, with the idea of appealing to a broader audience, but also letting people um, cycle greater distances. And in that way, and you said you see the same here in Amsterdam, they hope that it will replace a lot of car journeys as well. So you see the use both by existing cyclists, but also by people who would do, say, a a 20 kilometre trip um, that they normally would have done with a car, with an e-bike. And actually, another big impact here in the city is the impact on last mile deliveries. So all this use of Amazon uh, and other online delivery platforms, of course, is clogging up the city with these deliveries. And Companies like DHL and other postal delivery services are increasingly turning to electric cargo bikes, partly for their sort of green credentials, partly to save costs as well, um, but also partly because it's faster. What about costs? Uh, The last time I looked, which was a while ago, electric bikes were really quite expensive. Have they come down a lot? They are coming down. They're still not cheap. If you want a decent enough one, you're quite quickly close to 2,000 euros, if not more. If you want one, as I've seen a lot here in the area where I'm phoning you from, you can pedal your kids around with your easily up to sort of 4,000, 5,000. Having said that, bikes from China, the biggest producer of e-bikes by, by a long way, are turning up increasingly on Europe streets and they are, or can be much cheaper, I should say. If you go to Alibaba, you can you know find an an e-bike for, for $500 or so. Um, of course, a lot of the European producers are complaining about both the quality of these bikes as well as the fact that China might be dumping these bikes on, on Europe's streets. Are they dangerous? They're certainly more dangerous than normal bikes. I mean, these things go 25 kilometres per hour, sometimes 40 kilometres per hour, depending on which one you've, you've got. And that is leading to a lot of discussion here, certainly about restrictions on speed, helmets, um, insurance, uh, parts of the road they can use. Um, I was speaking to a surgeon here the other day who said, you know, we are getting quite a lot of people into the hospital now, particularly older users um, with, with, with head injuries. So that is definitely a concern. Having said that, regulation may have been a bit slow as, as everybody figured out how these things worked and where the dangers were, but now it's catching up. Sasha Nauter, thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.